Well, that's our prayer today, Father, that you would indeed, through the preaching of your word, show us Christ, and as a result, change our hearts. Father, make us tender for your word and give us a willing spirit to obey that your Holy Spirit would accomplish your purposes through us, through your word, as we're gathered here together as your church today. What a privilege is ours to gather here and to encourage one another and now to continue our worship through the, through the hearing of the word. So please, Lord, visit us, and work on us, change us and challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is uh, Labor Day weekend, and uh, perhaps more than any other event, Labor Day signals for us the end of summer. I don't know what you have planned for the weekend, probably a picnic. Speaking of picnics, I hope to see you out at our church picnic today. Pastor Everett was reminding you, it's in the bulletin. It's our annual church picnic here this Labor Day weekend. And uh, even if you didn't plan to come, please come. It's right down Daniel Road at our church property down here at our pavilion. I'm sure there'll be plenty of food, a lot of fun together, and then the baptism at 3 o'clock. And Labor Day's kind of become known as uh, kind of a picnic holiday. I don't know if you know that it didn't start out that way. Um, it was actually um, initiated back in the early 1800s, around 1882, uh, by some labor unions, And uh, it was intended uh, to be an annual tribute to the contributions that workers have made to the strength, the prosperity, and the well-being of our country. It's interesting, isn't it, on Labor Day that we don't do anything, we just take it easy and eat. And uh, it seems like it would be more appropriate to get up extra early and to work extra hard uh, in honor of Labor Day. It actually began in the uh, Pacific Northwest in the state of Oregon, in 1882, and by 1885, at least 23 other states had picked up on this special day of honoring laborers and labor, and uh, eventually under uh, President Grover Cleveland during his administration, it was federalized and made into a, a national holiday. And I was just thinking that uh, since we've concluded our our Ten Commandments series for the summer, and we've got a couple weeks here um, to uh, fill in. Uh, we look forward on September 15th, by the way, I plan to begin a brand new series. Um, it's going to be a topical series. I don't do topical series very often, but I've ha- I've uh, just have strong on my heart a series that I really believe is going to impact our lives and impact our church, and it's on the interesting topic of sin and uh, we're going to have about an eight-week series on sin. And uh, so you get ready for that. It's going to be interesting, and it's going to challenge us. I think you're going to be amazed at all that the Bible has to say about sin. And uh, it kind of sounds overbearing at first, but I, f- I actually think you will find it encouraging and, uh, and helpful in your Christian life. I thought that this Labor Day, though, that we would just take today, and we would seek to encourage ourselves with this topic of work and labor from a perspective of God's Word. What does the Bible have to say about labor? What do we think about it? You know, we live in changing days. Uh, Many of you know that in the last few years, we've seen a dramatic shift in the labor force in America. Jobs are no longer taken for granted like they once were. Long careers are often a thing of the past. Well-paying jobs are a precious commodity. Unemployment has spiked. 
As a result, more people are sticking with jobs that they don't really like so that they make sure they have a job and keep a job. Some of you have experienced the, the, the seeming injustice of being terminated by necessary cutbacks. Some of you know what it is to lose your retirement benefits and, and now you've started once again at the bottom of the list and, and where you thought at this point in your life you would be advancing, you're now at a lower level, at a lower paying job. You find it very frustrating. Others, you are committed to sticking to the job you have because the market is so poor and you hate your job. Monday, for some of you, the word Monday brings a dread, even a tightening of the throat. Sunday evening, some of you are overwhelmed with a foreboding, even dark cloud of of depressive-like thoughts as you recognize that once again you begin your commute tomorrow morning Life is not easy on the job front right now. Some of you find yourself doing more than you were originally hired for at your job as other people have been terminated. And along with cutbacks, you're doing sometimes the jobs of two or three different people and yet you've not been compensated for it. It brings a little bit of anger, even frustration, perhaps bitterness towards your leadership at your work front, your owners, your bosses. Some of you are just tired You're tired of working. You're pushing the envelope. You're struggling to make ends meet. Reminds me of a a little story that Chuck Swindoll used to tell years ago. I can remember him using this story. and I ran into it. He's talking about how fatigued people are when they work. And uh, this is kind of outdated in its numbers and statistics, but it still makes the point. He says, yes, I'm tired, For several years, I've been blaming it on middle age or iron-poor blood or a lack of vitamins or air pollution or water pollution, obesity or dieting or underarm odor or yellow wax buildup or a dozen other maladies that make you wonder if life is really worth living. But now I find that it's none of that. I'm tired because I'm overworked. The population of this country is over 200 million 84 million are retired. That leaves 116 million to do the work. There are 75 million in school, which leaves 41 million to do the work. Of this total, there are 22 million employed by the government. That leaves 19 million to do the work. Sorry. 4 million, 4 million are in the armed forces, which leaves 15 million to do the work. Take from that total the 14,800,000 people who work for the state and city government, and that leaves 200,000 to do the work. There are 188,000 people in hospitals, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. Now there are 11,998 people in prisons. That leaves just two people to do the work. You and me, and you're sitting there listening to me. It's no wonder I'm tired. Well, I don't know exactly where you find yourself in the job market right now or how you view your job. But I want us to take a few minutes this Labor Day Sunday and I want us to look into God's Word together. And I do want to encourage you. I don't want to oversimplify. I know that some of you find yourself in very complex situations, very difficult circumstances in the job front. Some of you really are in many ways trapped or, or you're held back and you don't know what to do about it. You don't know what to do to solve some of the problems that you have on the work front. And what a huge area of our lives this is. We spend more hours at work than we do at home. We, um, we're overwhelmed with the reality of all the things going on in our lives and nothing is greater 
uh, of an overwhelming element for many of us than what happens on the job front. I thought even by continuing our introduction here and laying a groundwork that it would be valuable for us before we plunge into Colossians chapter 3. I want us to go to Colossians 3 and you can turn in your Bible there right now as we look at what the Apostle Paul has to say specifically to those who are uh, um, employed and those who are in the work front and and um, find their lives weighed down by their jobs, I thought it would be valuable for you to just listen for a minute and just take in a little bit more of a foundation of a biblical theology of work. Some of you might think that the Bible really doesn't have that much to say about our jobs or about work. The Bible has a lot to say about it, and in fact, we can easily study God's Word and dig into Scripture, and we can see that God has much to say about how He wants His people to perform and to function in the job market and at, and at our work. And I also want to recognize those of you that might not get up and punch a clock, but some of you get up and you face another sink full of dirty dishes. You face more diapers to change. And some of you homeschool moms, you don't know how you're going to get through the day with your homeschooling, and you're overwhelmed by your work. And it's difficult, and you may be struggling with your attitude. And some of you might benefit by taking some of the verses that I'm going to give you right now and, and continuing to explore and develop on your own Bible study, what does the Bible really say about work? Let me just rattle off some verses. You listen. If you want to take some notes, you might find it helpful. But let me just give you a brief summary. This is a superficial and brief summary of a biblical theology of work. Number one, you need to know that work is by God's design. Work is by God's design. Listen to what Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says. It says, The Lord God took the man, that would be Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden, listen to this, to work it and to keep it. Do you know that that happened before Eve was even created and on the scene, before they were deceived by the serpent, before they entered into sin and condemnation, and before God cursed the ground to make weeds grow and condemned men to working by the sweat of their brow, that part of God's plan and design for humans, for mankind, was to work. We don't know exactly what that work looked like for Adam. But God had specific tasks for him in his oversight of the garden. And it was a good thing. Remember the repeated phrase in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. When God created it, he put it together, he formed it, and it was, say it, good. And it was good. And he put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, and it was a good thing. And so you need to understand, first and foremost, in our theology or our biblical understanding of work, that it is by God's design that we should work. Second thing you need to know is that laziness is condemned. Laziness is condemned. We have many helpful verses in the book of Proverbs on this, and let me just rattle off a couple. I'm only going to give you a couple of verses um, one is Proverbs 18, verse 9. It says, Proverbs 18, 9, One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Think about that. One who is lazy or slack, a slacker in their work, is a brother. That's, that's closer than a kissing cousin. Is brother to him who destroys. You wouldn't think that... That slacking and being lazy in your work is the same as vandalism. It's destructive. 
God condemns laziness. In the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 10, it says that if a man shall not work, he should not eat. Condemning laziness. The third thing you want to understand about the Bible, uh, the Bible's perspective on uh, laziness, is that productivity is expected. Productivity is expected. We are supposed to be, biblically speaking, and as God's people, He intends for us to be a productive people. Listen to Proverbs 24.33. Proverbs 24.33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a bandit, like a robber. A little bit of sleep, a little bit of laziness, the next thing you know, poverty creeps in. It's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed, you're supposed to develop. You're supposed to grow. You're supposed to be productive. The fourth thing you need to know in your biblical mindset of work is that skill is elevated. Skill and craftsmanship is elevated, biblically speaking. Listen to um, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Be productive. Be developing. Be advancing. In our theology of work, we understand that work is by God's design, number one. Number two, laziness is condemned biblically. Number three, productivity is expected. Number four, skill and craftsmanship is elevated. Number five... Provision is required. Provision is required. What do we mean by that? 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. You are called, especially as heads of households, you are called to be a provider. To provide, you are to be a worker. It's part of our work ethic. I want to tell you, and I probably don't need to tell this audience, that in our culture in America today, we have issues with our work ethic. We have a problem here. We should not have a problem with our work ethic among God's people in God's church. And when we think biblically about how to work and how to view our jobs, um, we, will, we will perform at a higher level than the average person around us who prides themselves in their slacking and in how much they can get away with when the boss isn't looking. The sixth and final thing that I'm going to reference to you as far as just laying a foundation of our biblical understanding of, of work is that is this. It is that, number six, that generosity is encouraged. Generosity is encouraged. You say, well, what does that have to do with work? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. I think you had this verse last week when Dr. Shupi uh, filled in the pulpit for us. I listened to that at the beach house in Sunset Beach, North Carolina, had my t-shirt and shorts on, barefoot, feet propped up, fell asleep about halfway through, and uh, not really, I didn't really. I just love Jim Shoopy. I hope you are learning to love him and appreciate him as well, and what a gift he is to our church. But I thought he did a great job of bringing together grace and works and showing us how even in the New Testament, God is a God of directives, and we have commands, and that in, and by His grace we can live out these commands. Um, but in Ephesians 4.28, where, where Dr. Shupi was last week, we read these words. Listen. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. There's our word. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Listen to this. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see what the motive the Apostle Paul is saying to the church there at Ephesus? That some of them had criminal backgrounds. Some of them uh, were were sinful, wicked people, and they were, no, they, were, they were thieves. He said, knock it off. Now that you're in Christ, get to work. Work with your own hands. And part of the reason that you work with your own hands, it drives you to get out of bed in the morning, is so that you will have something to give to those who are in need. Isn't that great? And that's particularly pointed at God's people in the church, where we're called to love one another deeply and to care for one another thoroughly. And to meet one another's needs. One of the motivations to get out of bed is just to, it's to provide for your family. It's to pay for your bills. It is to, to be productive. But it is so that you will have extra money to help out the church. And your church family. You know, when that kind of thing's going on, that's when a watching world who is totally disinterested in the gospel, understandably so, in the darkness of the mindset of the day, But if they get anywhere near the Bible church or Bible-believing Christians, they ought to be puzzled. Do you know that? That you people are unlike anybody I have ever been around. Which reminds us of our topic of the day, our work and our labor and getting out of bed and going to work. And I wonder how many of us have undermined our testimony for Christ starting Monday morning because we're already wondering where's Friday Of all people, God's people ought to say TGIM instead of TGIF. Thank God it's Monday. I get to go to work. Let's see what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 on this subject. We've laid a little bit of a foundation of the theology of work. Um, And what I want to do with Paul's practical teaching here is I I want to just take it line by line and I want to use it to unfold it in such a way that we end up with six questions out of our text that will be an attitude check for the Christian employee. So you could, you could label this as an attitude check for the Christian employee. Let's look at Paul's text here to the Colossian believers. Um, to put it in context, we want to begin with verse 18, where we see that he begins um, talking about the closest and most important relationships in our lives. Now, um, just like you saw last week in Ephesians 4 with, with Dr. Shupi, you'll see today, the Apostle Paul had a writing pattern in his epistles. You know the word epistle, it, it means letter. It's a detailed letter, usually written by an apostle. Um, sometimes people think an epistle is the wife of an apostle, but that's not true. And it's a, it's a letter. And we have them in our Bible. And uh, the Apostle Paul wrote many of them. And, and what he did in his pattern is he often laid a groundwork of, of a theological understanding of who God is, why God is requiring things of us, who Jesus is, who we are in Christ. And he lays this doctrinal theological groundwork. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in Colossians. He does it in Romans. He does it repeatedly. And then after he lays this theological groundwork, kind of building from the foundation and coming up, then he will transition in the, lat- the later few 
chapters of the book, of the epistle, and he will bridge with a word. Usually the word is, therefore. He'll say, because of what God has done for us in Christ, and because we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ, and because, say in Romans, we're no longer seated in the seat of condemnation, and that Jesus Christ has come, and He has taken that condemnation for us, and He's gone to the electric chair for us, He's gone to the cross, and He's taken our punishment, and and by grace through faith, we've come to the cross, and... We've experienced His substitutionary death and we've been declared righteous in the, in the eyes of a holy God and we're justified and, and Christ has satisfied and met the demands of a holy God. He's, he's been our propitiation and He's cared for these things. And by grace, through faith, we're new creations in Christ. And, and Paul just goes on and on and on in these books and some of it's real hard to understand and you've got to read it and reread it and dig deep. And then he says, therefore, 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 All this adds up to you should be different than everybody else. You see, there's no such thing as a believer in the Lord Christ whose life doesn't change. We emphasize that regularly. The Bible couldn't be clearer on this subject. You don't name the name of Christ and just keep living the way you're living in sin. God begins to produce change as a result of of your salvation, as a result of the transforming power of the gospel and you've entered into this great salvation, you begin to change. This afternoon, I hope you'll be there. It's a beautiful setting out at the outdoor chapel in the woods. We have a portable baptistry up on the platform, and we have two uh, children and two young adults who are going to enter into the waters of baptism and proclaim Christ. There's no such thing in the New Testament as an unbaptized believer, and there's no such thing in the New Testament as a believer in the Lord Christ whose life isn't changing for the better, conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. He just says, therefore, you need to understand this. As a result of this great salvation, verse 18, Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. See, worldling people don't do this. Pagans don't care about this stuff. They hate this stuff. But newness in Christ opens our eyes to a whole new way of living. And so what's more important than the husband and wife relationship? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Interesting how we can be mean to the people we love the most, isn't it? And children, obey your parents. Another set of relationships. The husband-wife relationship is transformed in Christ. And then the parent-child relationship is transformed in Christ. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. If you're a child here with a parent, an adult with a parent, um, one way that you can know that you please the Lord is just to obey and honor your parents. That pleases God. How cool is that? How great is that? Just kind of walk around obeying your parents thinking, this pleases God. God is pleased with me. I hope my son's listening, wherever he is. All right. So you have these relationships. And fathers, he says, verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He knows how strong men are. He knows how we have an expectation. He knows that we want the best for our kids and how sometimes our encouragement can turn harsh or critical. And he warns us, don't do that. These important relationships. And then he enters into another relationship. Verse 22 through 24, which is our text that I want to get to today. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Let your eyes fall on verse 25. And let's just comment on that right now. Because so many of us struggle in the workplace and in our working relationships with injustice. And people doing us dirt or backstabbing or people making us look bad so that they look good in front of the boss. Listen, it's not our job to police ourselves. He says right there, the wrongdoer in the context of the working relationship of the servant to the master, of the employee to the employer. Listen, those who are doing wrong, and this is a poke in the eye in the church at Colossae for those masters who are mistreating those people who are under them in, in servant, in a servant capacity. If you're doing wrong, God's going to get you. You can know that if you have a boss who's wicked, if you have unkind employees around you, you need to just try to commit that to Christ. And remember Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. God will take care of all the wrongdoing. And there's a lot of it out there, isn't there? Well, we have this interesting relationship here that is spoken of. Husbands, wives, children to parents. And then he has these, this term, bondservants. The idea of a bondservant is somebody who's obligated to work for someone else. At this period in history, in the Roman Empire, they say that up to one-third of the population fit this role of being a bondservant. That is, that they did not have their own freedom, that they were absolutely obligated to work for a specific master. This happened in a lot of different ways. Some of it was the Roman conquests, and when they went off to battle and came back, they brought people back who they captured from other countries, and they would put them in, in service, and they would serve as servants. Sometimes it was an abusive, horrible situation. Sometimes not so bad. Uh, not to be thought of exactly like our American history in the historical context of slave and African slavery in America. It still wasn't great, but sometimes it had to do with people paying off debts. People couldn't pay back a debt, and so they would go into a bondservant role with somebody that they had an obligation to, and it was set up for a certain period of time, and to pay their debt, they became this bondservant to these other people. Uh, sometimes people just didn't have work. They couldn't feed their family. They couldn't take care of themselves. And there was nothing available or they didn't have a, the right kind of skill set. And so they would find somebody where they could come in under them and they would commit sometimes even for the rest of their lives to be bondservants. An interesting dynamic began to, ha to take place. In the church, you now have the resurrected Christ. We now have salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. When Jesus has ascended, the apostles are scattered and preaching. Persecution has scattered the believers. The churches are growing. And guess who's getting saved out there? Masters are getting saved and servants are getting saved. And so now they come to church and they're sitting in church together. Sometimes a master with his own slaves are seated right there in church next to each other. And so the apostle Paul... In, in such a masterful way, communicates to them in such a way that they are equal spiritually. And that the one is to honor the other, and that the other is not to do wrongdoing, or God is going to pay him back. And, and it's an interesting concept. And so, he, he literally undermines the reality of slavery, ultimately, through the love of Christ. How can a master elevate his fellow man and love them as himself and love them as Christ and abuse them as slaves? It can't be done. Slavery cannot fit inside the context of Christianity in that sense. And so what we have here for many of these people, they didn't look any different than anybody else. And you, 
you know, they, they had a pretty good livelihood, and they, but they were under a commitment where they were a bondservant, and they were obligated to work for somebody else, a lot like this room full of people right here. You're obligated to work for someone. And you're committed, and you're, it's very difficult for you. And, uh, or it's not so difficult for you. You love your job, and, but you have someone to whom you answer. And so in this context and in our application for today, we see the bondservant as an employee, somebody who has a job and they are required to punch a clock that somebody else manages, somebody who has to answer to someone else. And then we have this master role. That's someone who's the owner or they're in management. And sometimes even masters had masters over them. Just like today, there's a hierarchy. And so we have this interesting passage of Scripture that we've read. Let's break it down and let me ask six questions as we unfold it. It won't take us very long. And I think you'll find it helpful as we do an attitude check for Christian employees. Question number one from our text, verse 22, at the beginning of the verse. The first question is, number one, do I have proper respect for authority? Do I have proper respect for authority? Look what he says. Bondservants obey in everything. That's a pretty clear directive, isn't it? It's pretty clear that what he wants them to do is that you have to respect and have regard for the authority over you. We have a huge problem with chain of command and understanding boundaries of authority in our culture today. We don't like to take instruction from people who are over us. We don't respect them properly. Through the years, I had multiple interns. When I was a youth pastor, I would have youth interns under me, young guys coming out of college who were wanting to get some hands-on experience in youth ministry. And it was interesting, on a couple of occasions, I had guys who had military background. And then they had gone to Bible college, and then they were planning to get into ministry, and they wanted to become a youth pastor. Guys who had a military background were so good to work with because they did what I said. They, they thought I was in charge, and I was. But nobody respects a youth pastor. Nobody pays attention to what the youth pastor says. Do I have an amen back there, Pastor Mark? And uh, it's like, no, we should. There's a chain of command, and guys who have been in the military, they recognize that if they have a lesser stripe on their arm than the next guy, they sure well better do what that guy says. I say, look, we had a big pizza party last night and volleyball and Bible study, and there's a bunch of trash out back, and take down the nets and pick up the balls, and a couple balls got kicked in the weeds. Go get that stuff and clean up and put it away. And 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're out there, and the stuff didn't get picked up. So what's that all about? Hey, I thought I told you to go pick up that trash. It's blown in the window. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to do it tomorrow? You're not going to do it tomorrow. You're going to do it today. And if a guy understands authority and he understands chain of command, he says, yes, sir, I'm on it. Off he goes. And you know, one of the problems that causes bitterness and anger inside us and resentment is when a boss asks us to do something, we act like they don't have a right to ask us that. I don't understand that. They're in charge of my world. I'm employed underneath them, and they've asked me to do something. Then understand authority and get with it and do it. You don't have to think about it. You just go do it. You do it. You're on it. But here's what happens when we don't understand authority. It tightens our gut. And man, we start getting some heat under our collar. And we just don't like it. And I like to tell this guy a couple things. I'm not going to do it because he's watching right now. But 
And so one of the things that Paul says is, listen, you need to understand authority and bondservants. Change your attitude and make sure your attitude is one of a joyful obedience. Understand those with authority over you and fit in underneath them. For some of us, that could change the whole atmosphere of our day. Just recognizing that I'm not in charge, they are, and I'm going to do what they say. Understand and have a proper respect for authority. You, it's interesting to take note that in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1 where he addresses, don't turn there because we need to scoot on. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, he, he reminds the servants there that their master is worthy of honor. Worthy of honor. Listen, your boss is worthy of honor simply for the fact that he's your boss or she's your boss. Question number one in my attitude check as a Christian employee, do I have a proper respect for authority? Notice the next question is going to be, am I grooming a heart of humility? Am I grooming in myself a heart of humility? Let's look at our text. Verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. I'd like to, to land on that little two-word phrase, in everything. I'm pretty sure that everything there doesn't really mean everything. Um, we know from other passages of Scripture that we do what God's will is. We do what Christ would have us do. We are not allowed to tamper with evidence. We're not allowed to falsify signatures. We're not allowed to take home things we're not supposed to take home, even if our boss tells us to. We're not allowed to steal trade secrets from other company. We're not, a, we're not allowed to spy or undermine other people when we do things that are biblically unethical or sinful. Yes, we can look at our boss and say, you know, I'm just not going to be able to do that today or ever. And if you need me to do that, I'm going to have to go get a new job because I'm not going to do it. And you need to stand up courageously, kindly, lovingly. The Lord's in control. And you never compromise your Christianity. You never compromise your biblical ethic to violate what God has spoken because your boss tells you to. So what does he mean in everything? I think, I take it to be that the idea in a broad range of our daily activities of our employment, we're going to do some things that are more pleasant than other things that are less pleasant. And so in everything that we do in the scope of our work, have a good attitude, attack it, get on it, do the least desirable things first, do the least desirable things in the morning when you get started, don't procrastinate, those kinds of things will help you learn. And most of you get management and, and initiative um, encouragement and you're, you're taught how to do things better on the work front. I think what he's talking about here as we groom a heart of humility as a Christian employee is that your boss sometimes will ask you to do things that you're not paid to do. I mean, there's a conference happening and you're in the conference room and you take a break and your boss comes up to you and says, Hey, Jenk, the, the toilet, the third stall down in the men's room is overflowing. Can you quick go grab the plunger and take care of it and clean it up? The, the maintenance, internal maintenance is on their lunch break and we got to take care of it. We got some important people here. They're going to be heading to the restroom. Would you go do that? And you say, That ain't my job, bud. I don't get paid for that. I'm a software expert. No, your boss asked you to do something, and the Apostle Paul said, in everything, do it with a heart of humility. Do it quickly, happily, readily. Question number three. Question number three from our text will be, 
Is my heart attitude one of sincerity? Is my heart attitude one of sincerity? Notice what he says in our text. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Ah, now we're going to pluck a string. How many of us act differently when the boss is around than when the boss isn't around? How many of us are more productive when the boss is watching than when the boss isn't watching? Apostle Paul says, you don't, you don't do this as a people pleaser or when someone's eyes are upon you. What is your heart attitude at your work? And is it in all sincerity? This is a contrast. This is a contrast between that which is done because the boss is looking or an eye service or that which is done out of an authenticity and integrity and a sincerity. It doesn't matter who's watching. You can count on me. That's what Paul's saying. Masters, masters shouldn't have to threaten. They shouldn't have to patrol the hallway. When they have Christian employees, Christian servants, our job is to make our master productive and make him look good and increase his wealth. Look what he says. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Many of you are thinking about somebody at work who's just like this. Our job this morning is to not think about other people. It's to think about ourselves. Am I guilty of this? Am I guilty of this? If I'm working alone back in a corner cubicle and nobody's watching, am I just as effective as when I'm in the most visible spots in the office? Fourth question. Is God my ultimate authority? Is God my ultimate authority? Look what he says. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with this sincerity of heart. And then he says, fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that I am so concerned about what God thinks that I'm trembling at my job. I don't, I don't really even need my boss to be here. All I need to know is what my responsibilities are, and then I am so aware of the eye of God upon me as I live my life that out of an awesome respect and even a trembling fear before a holy God that I would do what I do to please Him. That's what he's saying. And am I, am I driven by this? Is God my ultimate authority? I don't need a, a human boss even. I, that human boss is just an instrument of communication from God. The fifth question he says as we move into verse 23 is, do I approach my work with energy and productivity? Do I approach my work with energy and productivity. Look what he says, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do you know that that word heartily, if you were to tr do a, a literal translation from out of the Greek text, it has the, the phrase would come out something like this. Work from the soul. Work from your soul. Work from your inner being. The idea there is a, a heartily, enthusiastic, driven kind of work. Now, some of you, there needs to be a warning because some of you can't find the off switch. Some of you are guilty of workaholism, in a sense, or overworking, or you're driven. And that's a whole other subject in a way. It applies this Labor Day weekend, but you need to figure out what is it that's driving you. Is it a love for money? Are you trying to get the boss who is hard to please to say good things about you? 
Are you trying to avoid your home front and all the things that are going on at the home front right now? What is it that's driving you? And you've got to figure that out because that can be just as wrong. That can be just as wrong. But when you show up for work, whatever time you arrive, and arrive at the right time, even a few minutes ahead, heartily, and work from the soul. That's the idea of passion, isn't it? That's the idea of somebody who is engaged in their work in a meaningful way. Finally, question number six is, am I driven by eternity? Look what he says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You see, my boss's name is Jesus first. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord, look at this, this is fascinating. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, a question that I have that I'm not sure I know exactly what he means in verse 24 is he says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. What is that? He doesn't unfold it. He doesn't unpack it in the passage. That there is this inheritance that you will receive. Now, I know that I'm lined up to have an equal, I am an equal heir with Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about that? That when I am in Christ and my sin is forgiven and I've been to the cross and the gospel has done its cleansing work in my life and Jesus has taken my sin and he's given me his righteousness by grace through faith, no works whatsoever. And I'm a child of God that one of the things that is real about me is that from then on I am in an equal standing with Jesus Christ. I do not become deity and I'm not a a God or a little God But in God's eyes, when he distributes his wealth of all eternity, that he is going to give an equal adult portion to me, just like he would Jesus, because I've been adopted in at full standing of all the rights of a mature adult into the family. I'm part of the family of God. And in a sense, at that point, Jesus is my older brother. Hebrews talks about that. And the idea is that I'm going to receive an inheritance. It's going to be the wealth of heaven. It's the wealth of all eternity. But you say to yourself, now wait a minute. If that inheritance from minding and being careful with my words and attitudes with a mean, old, unkind boss means that I'm going to get this inheritance, surely it's not the inheritance of my salvation and all of the riches in Christ there because, listen... That's guaranteed at the point of my salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we're then sealed... And that someday we're going to have it. That's all about my salvation. So what is this inheritance? What is this inheritance? What is that all about? I I don't know if I can say emphatically all that it involves. But at some level, it involves a standing in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's my boss from the passage, remember? It's the Lord Christ I've been serving. And he's going to look at me, and he's going to say... Well done, buddy. Well done. You know all those diapers you changed, young mom out there? And all those dishes that were everlasting, they never ended. And then what the dog did besides that. And then your husband comes home and wonders what you've been doing. And then you look at your husband and say, what have you been doing? And then he thinks that you don't know anything and... You know, what's your attitude here? What's your job? What have you been doing? Jesus is watching. Jesus is your boss. 
It's the Lord Christ you're serving. And I take it that there will be this time, all things will be made right, and in the presence of the Lord, there will be some level of commendation. And like sitting alone at some varsity sports banquet in the corner and being the only guy on your team that doesn't get a letter and doesn't get a word of affirmation from the coach, and you think, man, I wish I'd have done more push-ups. I didn't work hard enough for the coach to even notice me. And your heart sinks. I think that will pale in comparison to the desire that we will have in the presence of the Lord for our Lord Jesus to look at us and to say, you did it. You did it. Let me show you what I have here. Got a new deer rifle for you. Nah, that ain't going to work, but you know. <laughs> something. Something. In, it's included under the word inheritance. I think I'll just trust my loving Heavenly Father, and the integrity of my Lord Jesus, that when He says He has an inheritance for me if I live like this, that that is a very good thing. I don't need to know all the details. So how you doing on your, how you doing on your attitude check for Christian employees? Whatever you do, work heartily. Do it for the Lord, not for men, knowing that It's from the Lord that you'll receive this inheritance. He closes out with that final phrase. You are serving the Lord Christ. Question number six, if I didn't give it to you, is am I driven by eternity? That's what I've just been talking about, this inheritance. Am I driven by eternity? Am I so convinced that what eternity holds on the other side of the sun, outside of this world and this life, that I will let it drive me? Monday morning, thank God it's Monday morning, I get a chance, I get a chance to work for my boss, Jesus. How great is that? Yeah, I know that we're weak and we have our vulnerable points and it's so difficult sometimes to work through some of these things, but I hope this attitude check will help and I hope that you've underlined or marked out Colossians three twenty-two through 24 in your Bibles. Let's go through the questions one more time. Do I have a proper respect for authority? Am I grooming a heart of humility? Is my heart attitude one of sincerity? Is God my ultimate authority? Do I approach my work with energy and productivity? And am I driven by eternity? Beloved in congregation, has our attitude about work deteriorated and actually become unbiblical? Have you become unbiblical in your view of your work? Have you become caustic and bitter where you are now sinful in the way you approach your work? What a privilege to get up and be able to provide for your family. It's God's plan. It's God's design. What a privilege to wake up in the morning and rub your nose and there's no hose coming out of your nose and to put on your shirt and it doesn't get snagged by a Pick line. And you can bend over and lace your own boots. If you don't have a car, you can walk to the bus stop or whatever. Some of us need to knock it off, the bad attitude. Some of us need to straighten up. We need to renew our perspective and our focus on our jobs. I'm not saying that you don't need a new job. I'm not saying that your boss is a good guy. I'm just saying that our job is to represent Christ well. And that we work for him.
and no one else. Let's pray. So, Father, strengthen us, would you please? We need help in this area. We're sometimes easy on ourselves. We sometimes make excuses that are outside of your mind and will. Father, forgive us for where we have brought disgrace upon the name of Christ because of our workplace habits. Father, we recognize that these character traits, some of them embedded that are negative, are very difficult for us to change in our adult lives. For years, some of us have had ungodly, unchristlike characteristics that we've manifested. Would you please help us to change them once and for all? Show us how to do that. Let your Holy Spirit work in us in a specific way and then help us to recognize when the Holy Spirit's working like that. That we would just have a joy and that we would bring a delight to those who are in management above us. And that most of all, one day in eternity future, our boss, the Lord Jesus Christ, will have a big smile on his face when he's talking to us about this aspect of our Christian life. So we need your strength. We need your forgiveness, some of us. We need your mind. Some of us need to be innovative and creative to know how to change what's been going on. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord, that you would accomplish your purposes. Change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.